Hey, everybody. Welcome to Mossback, the official podcast of the Mossback's Northwest video series from KCTS 9 and Crosscut. I'm Stephen Haig. And I'm Knut Berger. And today, we're revisiting the 1920s to talk about the Magellans of the Sky, the crew of aviators that pulled off the first around-the-world flight starting and ending in Seattle. If you haven't already seen the video, you can find it on the show notes or on crosscut.com. I think it'll make this conversation all the more interesting. But for now, prepare for takeoff. So, Knut, what spurred you on the journey for this particular episode uh, of Mossbacks Northwest? I actually got an email from a friend who is a member of the Friends of Magnuson Park. And this was um, last year, so 2022. And she mentioned that there was going to be a celebration of this around-the-world flight. And it was 100, the 100th anniversary was going to be coming up in uh, 2024. And I thought, you know, I've heard about that flight. I've heard about, you know, that this group of airmen took off from Seattle and went around the world, but I didn't know a whole lot about it. And I got interested and just started researching it and decided to make it part of season eight. And uh, actually, the 100th anniversary is starting in the fall, this fall of 2023. So it seemed timely. Magnuson Park is relevant because it used to be Sandpoint Naval Air Station. That's right. So it was an airfield back in the 1920s. It became a naval air station. Uh, it was very active in World War II and afterwards. And then eventually the city of Seattle was able to get it from the military, turn it into Magnuson Park. And that's where these aviators took off from. Exactly. That was the beginning and ending point of the very first around-the-world flight. Why doesn't anybody know about this? It seems to be kind of forgotten in Seattle history, unlike the many other aviation feats that, that we know of. Well, first of all, if you go back and look at what the press coverage was like in 1924, it was a huge deal, both nationally and locally. I mean, front page stories, detailed coverage, um, you know, there was tremendous interest in it. And, um, you know, tens of thousands of people turned out to see these flyers off and return. So it was a really big deal. And it was a big deal nationally because it was organized by the U.S. military. Basically, the Army, these pilots on this flight were Army flyers. And um, so it wasn't the kind of romantic solo adventure of somebody like uh, Charles Lindbergh, we did the first solo flight across the Atlantic in 1927. This is three years before that. This was basically an organized kind of military activity to make a statement about the power and logistical power of the U.S. military and the nation. Was that the stated purpose or was that sort of the, the um, something that, that – the country wanted to project? Well, I think I think people in power wanted to project that. I mean, you're thinking about this is right after, essentially right after the end of World War I. And out of that, the United States has taken a kind of new position as a global power. 
people wanted to be able to fly around the world in these newfangled <laughs> airplanes. And many people were trying. Some of them were solo, you know, attempts and whatnot. There wasn't a plane that could take you around nonstop. It, it basically was a vestige of the age of exploration that this was something that the nation could undertake and show off its, its muscle, show off its new reach, show off its uh, relations with foreign country and use it as kind of a PR, international PR effort. And at the same time, we could beat all the other countries that were trying to do the same thing. So, yes, yeah, so I think it was a very patriotic, very uh, nationalistic kind of uh, enterprise, but one that required uh, a certain amount of global cooperation. A projection of global power, of yeah. global reach. Right. And, uh, you know, the, the term Magellans of the Sky was a term that was applied to them at the time. That was the way they were referred to in press accounts. And, of course, Magellan was the first known... European explorer to take an expedition of ships and circle the globe. And so this was the era of new technology. We could go around the world in boats, but now we could do it in the air. In this area of the country, we love to celebrate aviation feats that are Boeing-centric, and there have been many of them, but this was not. Right. This was Douglas-centric, meaning that the aircraft that was used uh, were planes built specifically for this purpose by uh, Douglas Aircraft in California, and they had supplied the Navy with some torpedo bombers. And so they adapted that model for this effort. Um, I sort of assumed that Boeing played a major role in it. And they did play a role, which is interesting. The Boeing uh, engineers and mechanics helped get the planes ready once they were in Seattle for the flight. And uh, they, they sort of provided ground crew <laughs> for the effort. So these were – I think of biplanes, and these were biplanes, of yes. course. I think of biplanes as sort of the gnats of the sky now, you know, underpowered. and But these were workhorses. These were very sophisticated planes. Big, big engine, big V-12 engines, right? Yes. And built of? Well, they were built out of uh, metal, aluminum, but also it, they, were, they were transitional aircraft. Um, to do this journey, they had to be very durable and also very light. So the biplane wings were still made out of Sitka spruce and covered with cotton, treated cotton. So they, they had, you know, fabric. They had wood. The propellers were wooden propellers. You know, they had, very, had to have very many and, and fairly good-sized gas tanks to be able to um, get the planes going from one point to another. And that's something that's important to realize is that these planes were not going to fly more than four to six hours at a time. So they were going to be hopping around the world, landing either on water or on land, 
And at every point, they were going to need refueling. They were going to need maintenance. They, they were going to need to kind of refurbish and repair. And they had to hopscotch basically you know, the entire way around the globe. And they needed to find a route that would be conducive to that. So they started in Seattle, I guess, even though they were built in California, they started yeah. in Seattle because they were going to have to cross the Pacific, I would guess, via the, the Alaska Aleutian sort of Bering Sea route. Yes. Yes. They were going to be crossing the North Pacific. That would get them across more quickly. There was more ground underneath them for more of the way. Um, and Seattle was an aviation hub because of Boeing and, and tremendous interest here in, in early aviation. Um, it was sort of the last place in the U.S. anyway where they could um, stage the journey. So they had help from Boeing. They had an airfield, um, and um, they were going to, you know, fly north of British Columbia, Alaska, make the turn, head over to <laughs> Siberia, and down to Asia. Which sort of begs a question about the geopolitics of the time. Uh, as I recall, we didn't have great relationship with the Soviet Union at that time, 1924, after the war, after the revolution. Presumably, they would have to have landed in the Soviet Union someplace. Were, were there any countries that... And they did. Oh. <laughs> but um, they didn't have permission to. Um, and But this was one of the great part of the logistical effort was negotiating with these other countries around the world permission to land. And permission to stage U.S. Navy ships, refueling vessels, um, uh, military units and whatnot, so that when they landed, they had help. They had um, personnel that could, you know, sort of like a, you know, an NASCAR race, right, <laughs> where you have a pit, pit crew. Yeah, exactly. And they had, I think, mobile oil uh, participated in making sure that you know fuel was available, that kind of thing. So, it was a sort of massive, mostly public but somewhat private effort, and the diplomatic effort was part of that. So there were four planes, each named after a city, representing sort of the four corners of America. So there was the Boston, Chicago, Seattle, and the New Orleans. So these four planes, eight pilots take off from Seattle from what we know now as Magnuson Park. And they took off from water? They did, yeah. They had the pontoons installed. It took them a couple of days to get the right conditions and everything balanced. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, they rolled them in, into Lake Washington and they took off. And it was a nice day. The weather was good. They could see Mount Rainier as they were flying north. I think they knew better than anyone, how risky it was. I mean, they were sending four planes because I don't think anybody expected them all to make it back. The hope was that one would make it back at least. And um, yeah, there was a mechanic named Leslie Arnold who wrote in his diary that only one plane would make it all the way around. So they did better than that. <laughs> they did better than Magellan, really. Yeah, well, yes, they did. I mean, Magellan set off with uh, five ships, and by the time it got around the world, most of the crew was dead. One ship came back, and Magellan had been killed in the Philippines, so he, he didn't make it back. 
I bet there was actually a lot of real betting laying down of bucks on that day. I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised. I, I mean, I think it's interesting that the pilots themselves were so skeptical. And if you think about it, it's such a complicated enterprise, right? I mean, taking off and landing after flying in four to six hour increments, you're hopscotching in virtually every climate zone, every international zone. You're flying over oceans, deserts, mountains. You're in open air cockpits, so you're going to get snowed on. You're going to be in fog. There's no radios. They, they had no life jackets. They were going to be landing on water, no life jackets. They could only take two pairs of underwear <laughs> for the whole, you know, what turned out to be a six-month trip, right? They, they were really stripped down in order to keep the planes as light as possible and carry as much fuel as possible. And right away, they ran into problems. Yes, that's true. And let's just talk about the the planes in the sense of what they were like to fly because they're open-air cockpits. Um, you've got a pilot in one cockpit, although the plane could be flown from either cockpit, and you have a mechanic or engineer in the other seat. And that was sort of the assigned duty, but the mechanics could all fly. All of them were, you know, flyers. None of them were like World War I aces, Particularly, I mean, but they were experienced in the in the sort of end of the war, post-war um, flying service of the U.S. Army. So they're flying these planes at a fairly low altitude, um, five, seven thousand feet, somewhere in there, depending on where they were and depending on whether they had they had they could have wheels on them or they could switch to pontoons so they could land on water because not every place had places on land that you could, you could land on. So your pilots had to be really experienced. They had to be able to pilot these planes through incredibly different climates. If you're going around the world, you know, in Alaska, you hit a blizzard, fog banks, mountains. And that's, of course, what happened to the lead plane, the Seattle. They were on the Alaska Peninsula, and it crashed into the side of a, a, of a mountain. The pilot and the co-pilot survived, but they're in the middle of nowhere. These planes had no radios. They didn't have beacons. They, they were really on their own. And the only way they could signal to each other flying as a group was, you know, essentially hand gestures. So the plane crashed right off the bat. It took about 10 days for um, the pilot and co-pilot to find their way to a whaling station where they were able to get rescue and get word out that, that they had crashed. The other flyers, um, you know, were able to go on, and, and, and that was part of the plan. Part of the plan, they didn't plan for somebody to crash, but they had to build redundancy into the into the global flight plan, and this is they got they got tested right away. So three planes left. Uh, what roughly was the route? So yeah, really roughly, you know, cross to Siberia, south to Japan, then China, India, 
and the, and um, Pakistan, Iraq, you know, and of course these places weren't all known by those names at the time. Uh, they they had a, a rough uh, landing in French Indochina, which we know as Vietnam, uh, where one of the planes broke down and they had to um, send word out through the jungle by foot <laughs> to get word to a U.S. Navy vessel that could then get a replacement engine <laughs> slogged through the jungle um, to replace the engine in the plane. So they, I mean, the logistics were serious. You know, if you needed a new engine, there was a way that you could you could get one, but you had to run a lot of hardships in order to just get word that you needed help. So how many planes made it back to the United States and uh, where did they come into the country? So two planes uh, made it the whole way without incident. They came across from Iceland, Greenland, and landed at a place called Icy Tickle in, <laughs> in uh, Labrador. Oh, yeah, I've been there. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and uh, and then of course, then they flew down to the eastern seaboard. They received a massive hero's welcome. Uh, one of the things we sort of joke about in in the video is there's actually film of Calvin Coolidge greeting them and smiling. <laughs> he wasn't known so, for smiling. No, he wasn't known Very for stern smiling. Guy. And it, he had to stand out in the rain for you know hours. Uh, to greet these guys and was still able to cook up a smile. So that was their sort of, you know, their greeting. They had lost a plane off of Iceland, which had to be ditched, but the Navy ship rescued the pilots. They couldn't save the plane. But they had one that they kind of could rebuild for PR purposes. And so the three three of the planes, one was a substitute plane, made a kind of um, barnstorming tour of America as they came back to California, and then from California they came back to Seattle to the official finish line. What was the uh, the finish line like? What was the um, – do you have any idea what the day was like when they reached Lake Washington again? And I presume they landed again on the lake. No, I believe they actually landed on the – on the airfield. On the tarmac. On the, yeah, except I think the tarmac was basically dirt. They were greeted by a massive crowd, I think maybe up to 50,000 people or something like that, which is huge. And, of course, you know, at that point, Sandpoint is, a, is you know, outside of the main part of the city. It's, it's basically a field <laughs> in uh, north Seattle on Lake Washington. And, you know, they were greeted as conquering heroes. Um, the The... Pilots in the Seattle plane, which crashed in Alaska, and of course, you know, they were devastated. They were out of the game, like, in the very beginning. Um, they actually came out and greeted their friends, uh, the fellow pilots, landing. And this was much appreciated, you know, that they, the, the three planes landed wingtip to wingtip. And I, you know, I think that was very symbolic of the team effort, the group effort. Where are the planes now, the two surviving planes? Do they exist? 
Yes, so one is in the the um, Smithsonian's Air and Space Museum, and the other is in Los Angeles County Museum. People can go see uh, what what these yeah what these aircraft were like. The idea that one is in California uh, is interesting because, of course, they were built in Southern California. McDonnell Douglas grew to be a very big deal in California. And there was some rivalry with Seattle, both because of Boeing uh, and whatnot, but also because um, Southern California considered itself the starting point of the journey, even though it wasn't officially. All the records, um, you know, start and end in Seattle. So it was kind of, it was sort of the, you know, the factory. And then it was delivered, um, uh, you know, delivered to Seattle. And of course... uh, Interestingly, Douglas Aircraft Corporation merged with McDonnell and then, but finally, Boeing took over McDonnell Douglas. Or uh, the other way around. Or the other way around. But (laughs) it is known as Boeing. Yes, it's known as Boeing. And uh, Douglas had, as part of their logo, a little swoop that showed a, a plane going around the world. And after it merged with Boeing, that became part of Boeing's logo. So the flight is commemorated in this little, um, this little logo, if you know, what, you know what to look for. That's a very interesting fact. Yeah. 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 An around-the-world flight seems like a very big deal, yet it it seems like not many of us remember this. It's not well commemorated in popular history. Why is that? I, th- I have my own theories about that. Um, I mean, this was an incredibly complicated, big government logistical exercise. This wasn't like Lindbergh, Lucky Lindy being the first to fly solo across the Atlantic in 1927. His name is Charles A. Lindbergh. He's the dark horse in the transatlantic air race, but the crowds are with him. For unlike the others, he flies alone. And there you have a charismatic hero and a a guy who's, you know, seems like every man. A star. A star, exactly. So they were sending four planes around the world. The pilots kind of reminded me of you know, the right stuff, the original astronauts. In this case, these guys were, you know, recruited for their, their knowledge and uh, what they could do as a team. And that was a huge part of it. It was sort of like um, this was about teamwork. They relied on Navy ships. They relied on tankers. They relied on mil- military personnel in each of these places to keep them going. And I think it was also at a time where the U.S. coming out of World War I was kind of a new world power. It was playing a huge role in brokering the peace. It was, like a lot of other Western countries, was really moving ahead with aviation innovation. In fact, the air, modern aircraft carrier was just three or four years away. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was a, a demonstration you know, project for that. And um, there were other countries that were trying to um, circle the globe. They had their own crews. There was Great Britain, Portugal, Argentina, France, um, Italy. 
you know, the U.S. did not have a monopoly on you know, the importance of flight air power. Um, and this included everything from planes to zeppelins. You know, there was there was just a tremendous amount going on. People were very conscious of this. These guys are the new Magellans. We can go around the world on water, done. We know what that's about. Now we can go around the world in the sky. And I think that was uh, that was like the the golden goal <laughs> to get. And I think it fit very much with our post-war posture in the world. Well, 2024 is quickly upon us, and that'll be the 100th anniversary of the Magellans of the Sky, this incredible flight around the world. And uh, our producer spoke to Elisa Law, a historian who's working on the centennial celebration and what is going to happen. And here's what Elisa had to say. So what we have envisioned is partnering with Museum of Flight to display a series of vintage aircraft that were also around-the-world flyers, first around-the-world in their categories, and um, have those displayed at Museum of Flight on the weekend of the centennial. You can go to Museum of Flight and learn about these airplanes and get excited about their stories and then go to Madison Park or maybe NOAA, which um, is actually the site of the original um, Sandpoint Airfield strip. That's where they left from and landed back at. So the event will either be at Magnuson Park or at NOAA. And then on yeah, Saturday, you'll come to Sandpoint and you'll be able to see an exhibit about the flight, like get some food at food food trucks. You'll be able to um, hear the Navy band play and there'll be displays and, and performances and speakers. People will um, get up on stage and talk about their first world flight experience. And as all of those vintage airplanes like fly overhead one by one, and so there'll be there'll be a flying over event, it'll be like a parade of vintage aircraft. Thanks for listening to Mossback. If you'd like to see all the episodes from this season of Mossbacks Northwest, you can find them at crosscut.com or kcts9.org. The video series is now in its eighth season. A new episode airs on Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9, every Thursday night through November. This episode of the Mossback podcast was produced by Seth Halloran, and the story editors were Sarah Bernard and Sarah Menzies. Our executive producer is Sarah Menzies. You can subscribe to the Mossback Podcast wherever you listen. And whatever platform you're listening on, please review us. We'd love to know what you think of the show. And check out the show notes if you want to get in touch or learn more about each topic we cover. Also, if you'd like to support the work we do at CrossCut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts, the video docuseries we stream every week, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of KCTS 9. And being a member means you can sign up for an exclusive weekly Mossback newsletter from Knut Berger, where he offers greater insight into his latest historical discoveries. Mossback is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Stephen Haig. 
We'll be back soon with another episode.